0: Thanks guys. <clears throat> I usually try to listen to those songs on YouTube the week of uh, the band doing them. They always sound a lot better live. Just go figure. But that was just such a good job. Part of it's probably with my cheap headphones and YouTube and all that, but I just think our band is so, such a great job. So thanks so much Peter and everybody. Um, well good morning everyone. My name's Chris. If you didn't uh, know me yet, I'm one of the pastors here and we are, well, as Peter said, in the middle of a series right now on Big Questions we're calling it, which is kind of a topical series for us that we're not necessarily used to doing. We're about nine years old as a church, and I think I can count on one hand how many sermon series we've had that have been a bit more topical in nature versus expositional or scriptural, directly speaking. They're always scriptural. We're intensely biblical here as a church. Uh, we always preach the Bible every week, but our starting point, rather, is usually just a book of the Bible. However, we're changing the pace a little bit this summer, and, and we've asked the church to provide us some questions that uh, you guys have had about the, the Bible or theology or our church, philosophy or something like that and we've uh, sorted through them and got a, have had a great list this summer. So thanks again for all of you that have contributed and if you did and we didn't, didn't quite get to it, still thank you and we'll try to get back to you over email. Uh, we're still planning to wrap this up on Labor Day weekend with our last one and then we will start First Thessalonians. I think it's the first time I've said that from the, from the pulpit up here so some of you guys know that. We're going to start First Thessalonians this uh, September, mid-September and we'll take that through Christmas or so. Uh, really excited about that too. I'll talk more about that in in coming weeks to kind of prep you for that. But uh, but back to uh, back to Paul, back to the Bible uh, more explicitly anyway this fall. So, but uh, topically anyway, uh, we're going to dive in today to a, a question Peter mentioned. Actually, with all that said about the topical nature of what the summer has been, uh, this question today is a little bit more directly scriptural than uh, some of the more topical ones uh, in the past few weeks. Like uh, we've had questions on spiritual gifts and the nature of the church and the Old Testament law and things like that, which has been really fun. Uh, but this question we got uh, this for this week has to do directly with the passage of scripture that talks about Jesus saying, go and sin no more. So the question we got uh, was uh, this, pretty much verbatim, uh, twice in the Gospels, both in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, go and sin no more. I just don't understand why he'd say that. Uh, so it's just to reframe this question to make sure you understand the spirit of what's being asked here, uh, that and I hope this is accurate. (laughs) I forgot to verify this with someone who asked it, but I think this is what uh, the idea was, is that the the core of the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, says that in spite of your sin, come to Jesus and be healed. And then when you sin again, because, again, the point is not be perfect, then you're saved. The point is in spite of the sin, you're counted righteous before him and saved. And so when we sin again, that will happen. Come back to him. He will always forgive you. Jesus calling us to sin no more after our first encounter with him, seems at odds with this this message. So again, a little context. He says this twice. Uh, and the spirit of this comes out a little bit more, too, in some of his teachings. But directly, Jesus says this twice in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. He says it to a cripple, an invalid, after he heals him. And then later, a prostitute after he forgives her of her sin. He says, in, in light of what I've just done for you, healing or forgiveness, sometimes both and and, and in a sense, it's both for both individuals, go and sin no more. So today what I want to do is take the opportunity to uh, preach one of these statements into the greater context in which Jesus exhorts in this manner. We'll take the first one from John 5 when uh, Jesus heals the, the invalid. It's likely he's paralyzed, he's called an invalid. He's at least extremely weak and can't walk at all. He's been lying on his, on his side for years and years and years and years, but it's likely he's paralyzed as well. And he heals him from his paralysis. And so we're going to make some general comments about that. Just take the opportunity, because it was a scriptural question directly, to preach this right in context. Preach John 5, 1 to 14. And make some comments about it. Where's the gospel in it? What does that have to say about us and Jesus? And then we'll address this specific question at the very end of the passage. Why does he end that way uh, with calling this man to sin no more? And and it seems very absolute. Uh, In light of a gospel that says it's not about you and what you do, and you will sin as Christians, it seems very absolute to say go and sin uh, no more what's going on there. Uh, why would he call this guy to that type of lifestyle post-healing is the idea. So, all right. John 5, 1 to 14. Follow along in your uh, worship folders. There's an insert in there. If you want to uh, take notes, follow along that way. Or open your Bibles if you'd like or on screen. John 5, 1 to 14. Read it in full to begin. Verse 1. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this passage of scripture. Uh, Thank you for what it tells us about you, how it reminds us of grace, how it tells us a lot about ourselves as well. And I pray that you'd help us wherever we are spiritually, whether we're well-versed, maybe even in this passage, maybe some of us even read this this week and think we know a lot about it, maybe we do by your grace, but maybe some of us had never, ever heard this before. Wherever we are, God, speak to us, remind us, teach us, help us to leave learned, but more than learned, uh, encouraged and more thankful because of what you've done for us uh, and uh, this man, but then us by extension. So uh, bless our time in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's unpack this here a little bit, like I said, before we uh, get to the specific big question for today. Uh, the first and maybe uh, most important thing to know about passages like this, especially if you're newer to the New Testament, newer to these uh, these passages where Jesus heals people physically, uh, is to understand that these physical healings are not ends unto themselves. When Jesus heals people physically, it's part of the unfolding drama of salvation that has not yet fully unfolded but that will unfold when jesus dies for the sins of the world and thereby heals his church spiritually from their sins that in that in turn serves as a type of spiritual crippling and paralysis that prevent us from walking upright in his grace so it's a picture of something spiritual jesus himself shows this the bible itself teaches this in in mark 2 one of the many places when jesus heals another paralytic but before he heals him he looks at him and forgives him his sins it's a really dramatic scene where these people lower the sky through a roof, clearly looking for physical healing. And the first thing he says to him is, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. And so it's hard to know exactly what these people are thinking in that moment in Mark 2 because they're probably, probably in part thinking, well, that's great, thank you, but we really want his legs to work again. Can you do that as well? And he does eventually. And there are Pharisees, there are Jews there as well who are, are more offended at the statement because who, who has the authority to forgive sins? Who can say that? So they're more offended. So there's a lot of drama going on in the room. It's very crowded. But the, the, the interesting thing is, just the big picture, is that Jesus carefully forgives him of his sin in the context of physically healing him. And then later says, makes the connection, so it's, it's, it's a paradigm then to understand these things later on. It's the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and then he heals a lot more later on in the story. He says, I have come for the sick, the sinner. I have come for the sick, the sinner. Not the healthy, the righteous, but I have come for the sick, the sinner. So he makes that that connection between the physically ill and the spiritually ill. So he's very clear that this is why I'm healing. There might be more reasons, but the main reason is to demonstrate something deeper that everybody needs. I'm healing physically in part a few and in some cases, the Bible is clear that he does heal a lot of people, but in, in, in relation to how many people are just there regionally and globally, a few. What I'm really coming to do is offer healing globally, cosmically, by dying on a cross for the sins of the world and to offer healing from spiritual cancer. Even in this passage, he talks about sinning no more at the end. Right, did you guys catch that? How he's healing this guy physically. At the very end, he says, go and sin no more. So there's a clearly spiritual message embedded in this physically uh, loaded, miraculous passage, right? He heals the guy physically, the invalid, and then says, this is what I want you to take from this. Go and sin no more. It's the spiritual spiritual takeaway. Elsewhere in the the book of Acts, later on, in the historical books of the New Testament, when the, the church is born after Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world and is raised again, we see a lot less physical healing and much more gospel preaching take place. The declaration to the world that Jesus heals us from our sins when we, when we believe in him. So with this said then, with this type of framework in place, this biblical theological framework, we're invited then to read. Jesus invites us to read these types of passages as paradigms for how he saves us spiritually. Small demonstrations of how Jesus interacts with sinners and really a picture of every christian story who has ever lived this is not we're fishing for some cute little metaphors here this is jesus saying no this is what this means that there's no such thing as jesus healing physically and that's it he doesn't allow for that he says i'm healing a lot physically but he's also giving context to that saying go and sin no more or saying i forgive you your sins or so that you may know that i have authority on earth to forgive sins i'll heal physically so that you know I am God, the Son of God, and I've come to really forgive sins, I will, I will show you that by allowing this paralytic to take, take up his Mac and, mat and walk home. Some of that's from Mark 2 uh, that I alluded to earlier. So he's clear. He's clear this is what it's for. And th- because of that, it's not just an instance. It's a microcosm of the human experience. It's a picture of every Christian story who's ever lived. And if you're not a Christian today... You too are with us Christians lying on your side your whole life as an invalid, uh, waiting for someone to come speak to you, take up your mat, and go home. So we're there with you. The only difference is a Christian has said, yes, I want to be healed. And if, you, if you're not yet, you haven't quite said that. But it, so it's really not just a Christian story. It is the human story. It is, it is every human's existence. It's a microcosm of it. And again, if we'll miss this. We'll completely miss it. If we think that Jesus is just healing one guy of his paralysis here, we'll completely miss the point of what Jesus is, what the Bible is trying to say, what God's trying to say, what Jesus is trying to say and do uh, in in this story. So, So with that in mind, a little bit of framework there. We talked a lot about that back in our Matthew series and it's review for a lot of you, I know, but especially if you're new to these things, just have that framework in place. It's a paradigm for, to describe the, the human, uh, to describe how physical healings relate to spiritual healings, but also describe the human experience uh, beneath God in our sin and salvation uh, subsequently. So, have that in mind. When we have that in mind, then it tells us a lot about uh, what's happened to us, what the gospel is, what's happened to us in the world, what our sin has done to us, how God has come to find us, and what our response needs to be, and all kinds of great stuff. We'll touch on a lot of it tonight, all of it. But a lot of it before we get to our big questions. So, the first thing is, uh, the, the important thing is here to understand first, right away, uh, it's clear in verse 2 that, that uh, actually, verse, uh, verse um, 6 is uh, that Jesus finds this guy. Jesus finds him. Uh, verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? So Jesus is clearly the active party here, right? Grammatically and literally. So grammatically, he's the one that's seen this man. He's the one that understands this pool with the roofed colonnades. And there's a lot of invalids that that tend to gather there. And they believe that if the pool is stirred a bit at the first inn, that it'll miraculously heal or something like that. He knows about this. He's seen. He's acknowledging. He's interacting. So grammatically, he's the active party. But literally as well, because the other guy just lying there on his side. So he's an invalid. He's too weak to walk. He's a paralytic. He's literally lying on his side, not moving. But Jesus is the active party. He's moving towards him, he sees him, and he he interacts with him. So what this demonstrates then for us spiritually is that Jesus looks for us, you and me, salvifically, and that we do not look for him. Jesus finds us, we do not find him. So why is this important? There's a number of reasons. One, it's true. The Bible teaches this. Uh, John, this, it shows it here. says it more clearly elsewhere. In John 15, for example, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Just to be clear, it, it may have looked like you chose me when I, when I called out to Peter, Peter and Andrew when you were fishing and I said, put down your nets and follow me. It, it looked like you kind of had a choice there to do that, and you kind of did, but really behind that, I was the one that came to you first. I saw you. I picked you, I chose you, I called you. I chose you. And so first, it's true. Second, and relatedly, all these relate, it undergirds a, a, a theology of the severity of our sin. Romans 3.11 says, again, I love how the Bible is this way, For uh, by the way, how it, it demonstrates things and then it just says things clearly. This is like, you know, invalid Prepositional statement theology here in Romans three. You know the invalid is lying down, but Paul says elsewhere that the guy who wrote this book he says no one seeks for God. So the invalid is not seeking for God literally, right? But Paul just says you know on a big picture that's everybody in the world constantly. No one seeks for God. Period. Period. We can perform for God religiously, so we can look like people are seeking for God but no one genuinely seeks for him from their heart without God first finding them. This is in part what sin is. We look to other things to save us, like this guy looked to the pool. We are looking for fame, we're looking to, for attention, for approval, for relationships, for sex, for control, for kids, for good works, you name it, to be our functional saviors. But they always, always, always fail. Like this pool, every single day, this context in which this guy thought was going to heal his, his paralysis did not save. All of our functional savers, saviors constantly fail. So a Christian, then, is saved from that state unto uh, believing that Jesus is enough and sufficient. Psalm 27 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So it's, it's possible... It's kind of a dust statement, I realize, but also profound just to realize that it, it, it happens daily in our hearts and in the world around us. People are constantly looking for things to save them on a functional level, and they're not, but that Jesus, uh, Jesus does that. So the severity of our sin, no one's seeking for God. We're seeking for other things. We're not even aware of him really and aware of his, his chasing of us down. So there's that first. It's, it undergirds the theology of sin. And relatedly, it undergirds the the saved by grace, not by works message. This guy uh, was not healed by finding Jesus, right? Nor does it say anything about him being a great guy. Not one single word about his personal righteousness. And this is the gospel. It was impossible for us to get to God because we were paralyzed. Lying on our side, unable to move. So impossible for us to get to God. So God had to come to us. He became a human being, to die. he walked among us, he found us in our distress, and he saved us by dying on a cross for our sins. That's the gospel. It's not good news, it wouldn't be good news to rewrite this as though the invalid kind of did get into the pool. He found, he found healing through this other means, then he chased Jesus down, found him, and Jesus kind of told him how to live a better life. Not Christianity, not the gospel, Not true. So it undergirds the idea of being saved completely by what Jesus does, not by anything at all that we do. Jesus finds us and says, you are well, because I made you well, period. So then finally then, flowing from both of those things, if you really think about that and believe that, it's one thing to understand these things kind of definitionally, but to really feel it, what does it breed? It breeds joy and happiness, Breeds joy. To to believe that Jesus finds us in our distress makes us happier people. The the competing or contrasting religious performance narrative creates contempt and fear and competitiveness because it says you need to find God. In whatever way it it can say it. There are many ways you can say that or mean that uh, to someone. You need to find God. That creates fear. Well, did I really find him? Did I find him well enough? If I find him, can I then lose him again? And you compete. You have contempt for people that aren't quite up to your standards. You look down on them. It creates contempt and fear and competitiveness and and, and arrogance, many other things. But the gospel narrative, the narrative that John 5 is embodying, creates joy and peace, and others' focusness, and humility, because it says, you did nothing, God did everything. It says, he knows, like he knew that this invalid was there for 38 years, and he didn't know this guy, he just supernaturally knew everything, because he's God, he knew everything about him. He looked at him, he knew his condition, he knew he had never moved, that he was an invalid, lying there paralyzed, and in a similar sense, he looks at us and he knows us. He knows we've been lying in our sin our whole life, and yet he loves us and he wants to heal us. That creates a ton of joy. We just simply will not be happy people. We won't won't be as joy-filled, Christian or not, if we tweak this message to be more about us finding God rather than Jesus finding, finding us. He cares. He knows you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've thought. He knows what you've done in the darkest corners of your heart. And he sees you there and he goes to you and he says, do you want to be healed? It's okay. Get up, take up your mat. And if you say yes, take up your mat. So, so that's the first thing. Jesus finds this guy. Second thing, relatedly, is I kind of alluded to this, but he still needs desire to be healed. So interesting that Jesus asks him a question, right? Uh, it's, it's possible. And relatedly, he needs to know he, he's, he's sick. And, and we need this as well on a spiritual level. So it's possible then to be sick but to be oblivious to that and or to not want help. It's possible to be sick and not to really care, to be oblivious to it, or just to not want to go to the doctor. It just happens, we see that happen, right? But on a spiritual level, it's especially true. So Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And it's classic Jesus here. Uh, if you know anything about him, he's a classic question asker, but his, his main, the main questions he asks revolve around him. Things like, Who do you say that I am? Or what do you want me to do for you? Or do you believe what I just said here about myself, that I'm the only way to God? Do you believe that? Do you believe death is not the end if you believe in me? Do you believe that? And here again, do you want to be healed? Very, very similar. And so this is really what he asks us as well. Remember, if if it's true that this is a paradigm for the Christian and human experience then in fact he didn't just ask this two thousand years ago he asks it by his spirit right now in this very room do you want to be healed do you want to be saved I don't care what you've done I don't care where you are spiritually where are you right now in this very moment do, do you as he confronts us with this question do you respond Do you want to respond with a yes or or is it a no or maybe later or I don't really care uh, the guy says yes, so we can have a what's our answer, Christian or not, what is our answer, and love and willingness, he wants to forgive, what's our answer. This guy says yes. But it's interesting here, I think, too, that he's still, a, he's still kind of focused on the wrong thing. Not even quite sure it's Jesus yet. So this guy has a very, he's a picture in a sense of a, of a very basic theology kind of guy. He's, getting, he's experiencing salvation, experiencing healing, not even quite sure who he is. Finds out later, of course. He just goes and finds him again in the temple. But still kind of focused on the wrong thing as well, the pool. He says, he's basically says yes by saying, I, I want to get in that pool when it's stirred up, but I can't move. And people always get in before me. And so if the pool's going to work, it works. They, they believe that it was going to work for the first guy in or first gal in, and I can never get in. And so yes, but embedded in that is I can't get in the pool. And so still focused on the wrong, the wrong kind of thing. But I think what's cool about this is it reminds us that our theology does not have to be perfect in order for us, and pristine in order for us to be saved. I've seen this happen a lot in my life, and personally I've had this too earlier in my Christian walk, uh, but with others, uh, where people think they need to understand every theological mystery there is before becoming a Christian. And I mean everything. And that's, I, you know, I, I get the idea, I get that you want to know more, I get that people want to understand more about nuances theological nuance and things like that a lot of times are really really substantially just great questions Uh, but we don't need to answer all of them to be to be saved you simply need to rely on jesus and his blood which is again what this poor this story is pointing ahead to is the cross we're saved by Jesus' grace not by a perfect or pristine understanding of every aspect of what happened on the cross so like that song we said earlier is just rely on his precious blood Just rely on it. Don't wait till you're clean or healthy. Don't wait until you understand all mysteries, theological or otherwise. Just believe in Jesus. It's a very common thing that happens in, and I'm going to say our culture. It's probably true for every culture, but just seen it a lot in the American church, where we will add things to Christ. We'll, 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 we'll make it too hard to be saved. And granted, you have to know things. People need to know enough about Jesus to be saved, right? With know what He offers and what grace is, what happened on the cross, at least basically, to be saved. But don't make it too hard. When you evangelize, and just for yourself in this room now, don't add things on, uh, but believe and rely on his precious blood and you too will, will be saved like this man. All right, so Jesus finds the guy. Uh, he still has, has to have desire to be healed. And the question remains for us, uh, do we want that? And, uh, and thirdly, then, uh, Jesus, the third thing here before the, the big question is that Jesus bypasses the pool to, to heal him. This is really fascinating. Jesus bypasses the pool and just heals the guy. So, in other words, Jesus could have said, Get into the pool uh, one more time and then allow the pool to be stirred and to work this time, right? If you know anything about Christ and how he works elsewhere, that's not above Jesus. Like, he does that. He, he'll work physically to demonstrate spiritual truths. Kind of like when he tells his disciples to fish on the other side of the boat. <laughs> you know, when they can't fish, catch fish on this side, I love that one. Like, okay, Jesus, like, we're right here. You know, okay, we'll throw the nets over there. Love that one. And they catch a whole bunch of fish. So he could have done something like that. Get into the pool, and I'll use the pool this time. I'll, I'll make it work in the way that you kind of were thinking it was going to work. I'll allow it to. That would not have been wrong. He could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't hear. He does something like that elsewhere, but he does not hear. And I think that's the case, uh, at least in part, so that we might learn that there are things that that just simply do not heal in this life. 38 years. Can you imagine? I'm 38 in January, so it kind of resonates personally with me a little bit. But 38 years uh, that this guy sits by the pool and things that just don't heal. And then there are things that heal. Jesus. But then the question becomes, does the pool represent anything in particular or not? Because broad statement-wise, that's just true. There are things that heal, Jesus, and there are things that don't. Everything else in the world. So that's true on a broad level. But the question is, is there more going on in this story? Or something more particular that the pool is... Representing, And I think that there is because it doesn't just end here with a statement on his healing. It goes on and there's more said about what day it is and about what the Jews, the Pharisees say, how they're kind of offended by this and so forth. So I think the answer is yes and and that the pool represents something more, namely what the passage says, uh, the law and Sabbath in particular. Because this all happened on a Sabbath day. Sabbath was one day a week that the Jews were called to rest in the Old Testament by God and and not work, and it becomes this point of contention, right? It doesn't just comment on that, but it becomes a point of contention for religious leaders to say, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have picked up your mat and walked. Who told you to do that? And Jesus interacts and speaks and heals and gives solace in, in that context for a reason. So the fact that all this happened on the Sabbath and that it's recorded this way in the Bible, I think makes a couple of very important theological points about what's happening. And they, they relate. They seem to almost contradict a bit, but they're more in, in, held in tension. The first one is, on the one hand, I think Jesus heightens the idea of Sabbath here. It's like, the, it's like uh, John writes that this happened on a Sabbath to say that Jesus is giving rest at the highest level. When all around people were physically resting from their work and not doing a lot that day, Jesus heals us. I mean, can you imagine the emotional healing? Forget the physical healing. But the emotional and spiritual healing that happened in this moment when the guy, for 38 years on his side, stood up and walked, and his, he just got to try out those legs, and he picked his mat up, and, and he goes home. Sabbath rest, right? On the high. Like he's fulfilling this idea, giving him the idea of Sabbath and rest in a way that the Old Testament Sabbath could maybe whisper, but not quite, uh, not quite get to. On the other hand, I think we're seeing uh, some contrast happen here, right? Some marked contrast here between pool and Jesus and what that pool represents, law. Specifically maybe Sabbath law, but just maybe law in general, Old Testament commandments and law, and Jesus. In that, Jesus is not using the pool to heal him, right? He's bypassing it. He's using himself. In the same way, Jesus does not use the law to save us, He uses himself. He doesn't say, keep the Sabbath to this man and you will be well. He says, see, you are well. I have made you well. He bypasses it. The the law may have forbidden this man to pick up his mat, but Jesus says, I don't care. Pick it up anyway. See the contrast? The law is saying one thing and Jesus says something markedly different. And so on the one hand, he's fulfilling the idea of Sabbath. On the other hand, he's Replacing it, he's bypassing. It. He's offering something that goes around it, and allows it, and allows uh, to, him to be saved in a way that the former thing couldn't, couldn't get him to. It's part of what the Old Testament was meant to teach us over and over again, and the New Testament now picks up on it here narratively, in John. The law cannot save us. Only God can do that, and so we see in the story then there's this movement from keeping a Sabbath law-wise to keeping Jesus the true rest giver this is why elsewhere in the New Testament that the Christians are not actually called to keep Sabbaths in the same way that they were in the Old Testament because Jesus replaces it he he is our Sabbath or you could say we are called to do it but he he becomes it he gives rest on a much higher level rest for our souls as Matthew says in uh, chapter 11 in his uh, his gospel account so things are different and I think what we're seeing that take place here in this, he hasn't died on the cross for the sins of the world yet. He's about to, but we're seeing that slowly take place where there's movement happening. There, there's this moment, and, and it's, it's obviously a point of contention because there are people that get a little bit fired up about it. There's, they're, they're looking at the wrong thing. They're missing the point, but they're still noting that, that the law said, don't, don't work, don't pick up your mat. And Jesus is saying, pick up your mat. And so we're seeing that those things kind of butt heads here and as, as we approach the cross where Jesus really starts to replace things and become this new thing, this New Testament, new covenant in the world where it's completely based on him, not on uh, the law anymore to mediate people to God. All right, and then we get to the very end uh, where it says, in light of all of this, uh, Jesus finds the guy in the temple again and gets a little more clear on what happened there and who he was. And he says, go and sin no more. First, see you are well then go and sin no more, uh, that nothing worse may happen to you. So the big question for today is, uh, why is he saying this? What's this mean? And it's a little bit at odds with the idea of grace. Uh, what it's not saying, just to be clear on what it's not saying first, uh, it's not saying that if a Christian sins, they lose their salvation. And notice, he doesn't say that here, right? He's just saying, go and sin no more. Not comments, he's not kind of adding something to the subtext there, He's just saying, go and sin no more. But that idea of of losing what Jesus first offers us, if we then sin, that would espouse a a contrary biblical message. It would espouse a saved by our works, what we do type spirituality that butts heads with what Jesus even says elsewhere in, in his ministry and clearly what the rest of the New Testament says about the nature of the gospel. And also just think, well, Jesus is not going to say here, Uh, go and sin a little less than before, but it's not that big of a deal if you sin a whole bunch. You know, that would be kind of weird, right, to end that way. Well, now that this has all happened, try not to sin, but if you sin a little bit, that's probably okay. You know, I'll just kind of look over it. That would be weird, right? It doesn't sound like our shepherd. You know, it doesn't sound like Jesus to say that. So someone's just got to ask, well, what's the alternative? What else is he going to say, right? Well, that would miss the point. I'd miss the point entirely. In fact, just the other day, I I thought of this in terms of comparing with uh, how I was parenting my kids this week. Um, Because the big thing here is response. The big thing here is response and order. Uh, If you didn't know that about the Bible, the Bible is really careful with chronology. It makes theological points all the time about things that happen first and then later. To the end that if you flip them, it wouldn't be true. So the fact that Jesus heals here by grace and then says go and sin no more is crucial. There's a response idea. So in other words, uh, going back to what I was saying before, just the other day I was talking to my uh, six-year-old son about uh, something really bad he did to his sister, and which I won't I'll just won't disclose it, uh, just really bad. Um, we'll go into that. But anyway, uh, we talked about it, and he talked to her about it, and then we were talking um, just trying to give some context to that with him and to father him through that a little bit. But after we talked, I told him that I forgave him as well and that God forgave him and that he was loved. But then I said, uh, please really try hard to not do this anymore. Uh, it really hurts me. It hurts, hurts your sister, obviously, physically. It hurts your mom and I emotionally. It creates chaos in the house. Please try really hard not to do this anymore. It was a powerful moment for him, I could tell, especially the former, the, the first side of that, when forgiveness was extended, we talked about God and we prayed that God forgives him too, that Jesus died for that sin. And I, I could tell it moved in him because he didn't go and hit his sister right again after we got done talking. You know? I mean, if he did, that'd be clear, it'd be, it'd be clear that, okay, he didn't hear something, <laughs> right? would be like, it'd be really bad, and not that that maybe has never happened in our house, but it's like, in that moment, he... He wouldn't have lived out of the forgiveness and love that I, that I gave him. It would have been kind of a, a false reaction to the love and the forgiveness that I extended. Uh, to. He wasn't aware. He wouldn't have been, if he did that, it would have been clear he wouldn't have been as aware of his sin. He wasn't aware of the forgiveness that was just extended to him. But that doesn't mean that if he ever hits his sister again that I'm going to disown him. I would never do that. I'd still love him, Right? I think any parent in the room probably can resonate. It's not as though we'd say, "Please never do this again." But if he did it, that wouldn't be it. We'd still have love, right? We still our love would cover it, would extend into that. We'd be grieved, but it would extend into that situation. It's the same with Jesus. His blood covers your future sin too, and mine. Did you know that? He's not just wiping your 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 past slate clean and calling you to live a good life now on yourself. That's not the gospel. When he dies for the sins of the world, it's past, present, and future sins. It's completely done. It's, it's, it's erased. And so we have that grace. We have that gospel. There's a call in the Bible continually to believe it and to live, live out of it. So it means, then, that there has to be this statement of go and sin no more. Here in John 5, other ones in John 8. It just means here there has to be substantial, there's, there, there necessarily, if we really get the gospel, there has to be substantial life change in light of the forgiveness that we've been given, or it's a sign that we probably never really embraced it in the first place. And this leads me to the second thing, which is that salvation, remember the order here is important, salvation or forgiveness, or this pronouncement of you are well because I've died for your sins, leads to life change, not the other way around. Jesus, here in the story, remember, he is the one who's been sinned against. We sang that earlier, that Psalm 51 says that when we sin, we really ultimately only sin against God. So, and, and we might say, well, I sin against people too. Well, of course you do, but it's so much more an offense to God that the Bible says you really only sin against him. D- David says that after he murdered someone and committed adultery with his wife. You see, he gets on his knees in prayer and he says, I've only sinned against you, God. Like, are you kidding did you read the other part of the Bible here? You know, It's like, no, you, you just a lot something much worse to people. But, but uh, God, God says, God speaks into that, and he works in his heart to say, I'm really the, the primary one that's offended here because I'm God. And you've sinned under me. You've sinned to me. I'm the, I'm the offended. I'm the offended party. So here Christ is the son of God in this story with this man. He's the one who's been sinned against by this man. So the forgiveness he extends, the healing, the cleansing, should be followed by desire to not return on him more and more sin, willfully, at least immediately. Or let this miracle change your heart. Live out of it. If we really experience forgiveness, the last thing you want to do is go do the same offense to that person, extend that forgiveness to you in the first place, right? And maybe you will later on, but immediately? So Jesus says, See what's happened here? You are well. D- don't, miss, don't miss the obvious, because we tend to maybe look at that one statement of go and sin no more and read a works-based type religiosity into that. I understand how that can happen, but just back up and get the big picture here for what you said. This is one little statement at the end of a great exchange that's a lot of deep theological truth about who finds who and what grace is and what Sabbath rest truly is and how law can't save. and God does everything everything for us we do nothing we're lying there as an invalid and jesus says i love you see look you're well done go and sin no more in light of that be changed it reminds me elsewhere too in the bible how the the gospel so captivating the love of god so captivates us that 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 he says i've purchased you back with this act of love you're no longer your own i've bought you back you're mine. I, I, I've moved in your heart so much by extending grace. You did not deserve it. But I died for you. I bled for you. I was striped for, I was tortured for you. I, I, w- I was tortured on a cross for you for, not, for six hours. I would do it again. And he says, this is the extent of my love is sacrificial. I've, I've shed my blood. And then he, says in, then he says, in light of that, let it change your heart. Let it lead you to hate sin. Let it lead you to what nailed me to that cross. Let it lead you to respond to me in thanksgiving. Let it lead you, let it lead you to kill it with my spirit at work in your heart. Then he says here uh, at the end that, that nothing worse may happen to you, uh, w- which implies that, that sometimes sin is what causes suffering. Not all the time. The Bible is clear that sometimes it's not a one-to-one correlation and this is also not implying that there was one thing this guy did that God's paying him back for. It's just not the way the Bible talks about suffering and it's not the way it works. That would be kind of a works-based thing again, so it's just not that simple. Rather, this is a broader statement on how sin in general is what led to suffering and death in the world in the first place. People sinned against God and everything was cursed and suffering came into the world. So Jesus says, you're well, you're healed, you're washed, live in light of it, rest in it so that nothing worse may happen later on, likely referring to final judgment, right? That's a worse type of suffering. Again, not a tit-for-tat karmic kind of thing, but saying as the Bible does elsewhere, judgment is coming. All suffering in this life is just a birth pain, the Bible says. It's like a woman going into labor, those earlier birth pains are not like the major birth pains that, that happen a little bit later on. Suffering now is the earlier ones, the Bible says. But the, the labor of God's wrath is coming. It's coming. There's only one way out. It's through Christ. And so Jesus says, I've saved you, I've claimed you, I've renamed you, I've cleansed you, I've allowed you to stand up in my grace, take up your mat and go home. Live in light of that. Walk away from your sin. Repent actually live in light of the gospel that I'm giving you, so that you're one of mine, you're adopted into my family, you're saved, so that you're actually saved from a future judgment as well, and not just your not just your um, uh, relatively smaller suffering here, being an invalid for 38 years. And so again, the the final thing here, and I'll leave you, I, I got ahead of myself earlier, but just this final thing, don't Don't miss the big thing here. When he says, go and sin no more, right before that, he says, see, you are well. And this is a paradigm for our experience. He's saying this to you, you guys. This is not just said, if you believe it's just said to a man 2,000 years ago, it will mean nothing to you right now in this room. If you believe it's a paradigm, like Jesus says, for understanding our salvation experience in him, then you need to hear his voice in this immediately, right now. He's saying, I want it." do you want to be healed? And if you say yes at all, if you reach out for his blood at all, if you reach out for that life preserver and say, yes, I don't quite understand everything, but I believe that you're sufficient. I have sinned. Save me. He says, see, look, you're well. Take up your mat and go home. Instantly. Not do this and this and this and this and come back and see me. We'll have a performance review and maybe I'll do it then. Instantly. See, because it looks ahead to something he's going to do later on when he dies on a cross on his own accord for you and me. We're no longer spiritual invalids because he's died for us. So stand up, live in this forgiveness, be free. Walk away from the pool of your good works, your religiosity, your tireless Sabbath keeping, your striving after power and sex. Your shame, walk away from it. He died for your shame as well, your guilt. Walk away, take up your mat, Jesus says, and go away from this area. You're no longer needed here. See, you're different. And it's the same with us in our sin. We're reached in the caverns, we're reached in the tombs, we're reached in the darkest pits of this world. That's He goes to hell to get us. I mean, literally, we are hell-bound people, children of the devil, the Bible says. And Jesus goes into that context and there he, he claims us. and He pulls us out of the clutches of the devil and he says, no, these are my children. I'm dying for them. Let them go. So he goes into that and he brings us back and he says, step away from this context. You're no longer, your home is no longer here. And so that's the invitation for us. And so as, as we sing these last two songs and pray, I want to invite you guys wherever you are spiritually to believe that afresh today. That he's looking at you and he's asking you, do you want to be healed today of your addictions, of your sins, of your shame? Do you want that today, Christian or not? And respond, because he's asking this through his word. His word is alive and active. What's your response? And as we sing and close in prayer, uh, believe and know that he has declared you well. This is not an invitation. Love that about the gospel. This is not an invitation alone. It's not advice It's a proclamation that something's different about you because of what he's done for you. See, you're well. See, not try to be better, not have your best life now, not work harder, not perform, but you are well because I've said so. You are well because I'm going to die for you. It's an amazing news. How much joy is in that? You weren't even looking for God, and nor was I. No one seeks for God, but God seeks for us. Praise be to God. That's what he's like. He seeks for us. He looks for us. Did you know that? Even right now in this room, he's looking for you. He's looking for me. He's found a lot of us. He's still tirelessly looking. He's a shepherd looking for lost sheep because he loves the sheep. This is what he's like. And this is what this story gives us a whisper of, what the scriptures say, even more clear elsewhere. We touched on some of that. But it's a call for us to believe in that today, wherever, wherever we are. So we pray for us as we close here and we'll have the band up and uh, do a couple more songs. Father, thank you so much for uh, John 5 for this great question, first of all, um, that uh, we had given to us about the the nature of some of your teachings about sin and what physical healings represents, how you heal and then call us to forgiveness from sin at the same time and away from sin at the same time, clearly giving us a paradigm for understanding what's going on There when you heal lepers, when you heal invalids, when you forgive prostitutes. We are there with them. Uh, It's it's a microcosm of all of our experiences. Undeserved grace, not looking for you, lying on our side without a hope in the world. But you came and you know us. You know what our condition is. And yet you still look at us. You know what we're thinking. You know we're not seeking for you. You know we're not going to reciprocate the love you give us very well. At all. Ever. Ever even as the strongest Christians in the world will not reciprocate the love of God. And yet you love, and yet you forgive, and yet you wash and let you declare healing into our life. Thank you that the cross and the the empty tomb, when he died on a cross for the sins of the world and rose again three days later to overwhelm death, it dealt that decisive blow to all of our spiritual conditions, to our sickness and our sin, our cancer. Thank you, Father, that you overwhelmed it all. And you did it for all of us. Even now, you speak to us. You're not a billion miles away in heaven. You're right here where the church is gathered, reminding us through song, through preaching, through communion, uh, through love that Christians show each other, that I'm very present by my spirit, and I'm still speaking to you uh, the words of, of the Bible. And you're calling us to pick up our mat, to walk away from the things that we thought would save us and to believe in you and you alone. You are the only Savior the only way to God, the only truth. And now uh, we pray that you bless us as we leave here. Help us to sing and be thankful and as we leave to be more free uh, in the gospel than when we walked in. In Christ's name we pray it all. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.